This is Outspoken, the podcast of the Center for Oral and Public History at California State University, Fullerton. I'm your host, Benjamin Cothra. Here at Outspoken, we discuss projects from students, faculty, and the local community that incorporate public history. And because we believe there's no substitute for people telling their stories, Natalie Navarre, the center's archivist, will play some interview clips later on in the episode in our Out of the Archives segment. History is the past interpreted, whether between the pages of a book or on the landscape itself. In the late 1990s, what had been the Marine Corps Air Station El Toro near Irvine, California, closed down, and a few years later, the grounds became home to the Orange County Great Park, a sprawling complex that has been the subject of heated political battles. Over time, the park has developed as a recreation center and also as a place to glimpse part of Orange County's past. The development of the air station, beginning in the midst of war in 1943, helped shape the post-war course of Orange County history. Fewer citrus groves, more houses, freeways, businesses, and people. El Toro became the focus of a major oral history project conducted by the DeGroff Center. More than 500 people shared their memories of life in and around the base and considered its impact on their lives and on the region. The exhibition Farmers to Flyers, created by history students from Cal State Fullerton in 2009 and rehoused at the Great Park in 2012, told the story of remarkable change represented by El Toro. If you go to the Great Park, you can still see a few of the original buildings from the El Toro days. There's a hangar and a couple of training planes. Other buildings house galleries for a changing art and history exhibitions. Our fall 2018 public history class visited the Great Park on a warm September day and then set about creating what public historians call an interpretive site plan for history at the Great Park. This meant the students had to evaluate what the Great Park was already doing and imagine what could be done to maximize visitor access to the history of this important place. They would create the intellectual blueprints for new exhibitions, films, and activities that would draw out the Great Park's past. On this episode of Outspoken, we will hear from two graduate students, Cynthia Castaneda and Scotty Coyne, who led student teams as they developed the interpretive site plan. They'd never done something like this before. In fact, they'd never even been to the Great Park prior to enrolling in the class. I knew absolutely nothing about the Great Park, to be brutally honest. Um, I grew up in Southern California, I'll admit that, but I didn't grow up in the OC. I grew up in the Inland Empire. Um, So Irvine wasn't exactly an area that I trekked very often. And when I first went there, I never would have guessed that it used to be a military base. It looked like a giant sports complex where everyone goes for the sporting events. Um, So it was something that was kind of new for me. I was quite surprised of the history that was there. Um, Nevertheless, it was very intriguing as a whole just being there. And you could see that the history, it was present, but we, I felt like I had this desire to like bring it forward so that the public that's there, even if they're there for sporting events, can still gauge at it a little bit. Like it had that potential. I just had to find a way to get it. Everything's completely new to me. Great part concluded. Um, I really thought that they had this great story there of the base and it just kind of gets lost and everything else there, the sports, the farmer's market, which are great things, but they just don't integrate the history in a way that the public sees it. They may not have known much about the place at first, but soon the students learned what a rich history the Great Park has, reaching back to the Irvine family ranch and earlier, 
they began to think in terms of new presentations of that history. Um, so one of the primary things that really popped out for us is the history of the land prior to it becoming a military base. Um, it actually has a very um, familial research in that the land belonged to one family for an extended amount of time, and it kind of stayed very close-knit. Um, it used to be used for produce, so oranges, and then native cultures used to live there well before um, European settlers came along. Um, so the history is quite rich, but it kind of became difficult trying to decide when we were designing this exhibit, how far back we were going to go with regards to the history of the area. Do we want to go as far back as the native cultures, or do we need to hone in on something specific? And apart from that, what is going to appeal to the public? Not just what we found interesting, but what the public would want to see and learn about. So the first thing was digging through what the Great Park had to offer with regards to artifacts, and we really used that as a guide based on how we felt intrigued by whatever we found. So we found things like old duffel bags, flags, badges, and photographs. Um, but ultimately, what we really wanted to hone in on was things that will intrigue public goers that aren't aware of the history that's there. So what's going to capture their attention? And one thing that we noticed is that photographs oftentimes are the ones that really pique people's interest, primarily because they're quite eye-catching. You can find a message in it, and it doesn't require too much uh, deep thinking into it. Someone can look at the photograph, get an idea of everything without having to try to analyze it all. So we really try to look at the way that photography can be included along with what the Great Park already had available and on display and try to mesh it in together so that we give a more immersive experience. The students soon found that they would need to expand their research beyond the Great Park itself, visiting other repositories to help tell the story. We actually went to the Flying Leathernecks Museum in uh, Miramar, which is down over by San Diego, and that place was a treasure trove of history and photographs. If you like looking at pictures of the past, I was absolutely blown away by what, by what they had available there. Uh, that was one of the primary places. And we also looked into a lot of the local locations. So for example, the Irvine Public Library, the Santa Ana Public Library, of course, the Center for Oral and Public History. We had a lot of oral histories available there, uh, which kind of gave us an idea. And we were able to mix it in with regards to photographs. So we found photographs of social events and dances, and we were able to mix it in with oral histories from women who were at the El Toro base and talked about these social events and gatherings. So it was a really good manner to provide this full 360 view for the public where we get both verbal and visual confirmation of what was going on back then. From the start, you would think, well, these oral histories are just going to focus on, you know, military. That's that's what initially going in, I was like, all right, I'm not going to get too much beyond that. But really digging through, um, back to your point about appealing to the public and kind of tying it, the history into maybe relevant issues now, I found in these oral histories subjects such as uh, the role women played on the base and in the community or uh, racial uh, tensions that arose um, on the base and were going on in the country and kind of bringing those issues from the past so the public could kind of see in El Toro that it still stood for today and could show kind of the connection from the past to the present. Although the Great Park had a video to introduce visitors to the El Toro base history, Scotty's team decided to create scripts for three potential new video presentations using the oral histories. 
These supplemental scripts that uh, my team made were meant to um, dive deeper into the issues, whereas the doc there just went over, you know, the straight history. Ours were getting deeper into issues. I wanted my team, I just said, think of any, any ideas that come to mind when you're listening to these. Jot them down. And, you know, it took, I mean, at least a month. You know, we kept coming back to class every week, having different ideas, new ideas, tweaking ideas. And it it wasn't a quick or easy process because, you know, you have to, it takes time to go through these histories and really find what's coming through the most or what could speak to this rich history. So that's where we came at the end to um, racial tensions, the role of women on the base, and even um, combat experiences from veterans that were there at some point from World War II through to the 90s. So even the combat experiences, we wanted to give it a personal feel to go farther than just saying, like, these men served and, you know, give them the connection from these veterans to uh, the public. The interviews gave Scotty and his team access to the past in a way that couldn't be found any other way. All of these men were stationed there after World War II when it was actually used, but we uh, decided to use stories uh, from World War II that the men told just because we thought, you know, it still ties in even if they weren't specifically stationed there during it. Um, and one man was talked about coming off of an aircraft carrier in the Pacific, and he watched the three planes in front of him take off and get shot down immediately. So he's thinking, he says on the oral history, he's like, well, here I go, you know, I'm, <laughs> I might be dead in a few seconds. And he actually, like, laughs about it, which, you know, like, if you're reading it, you're like, that's not the impression you're getting, a guy laughing, telling this story. And it's just, like, very in-depth and gives you really a sense of the men that were stationed there. Meanwhile, Cynthia's team imagined a new exhibition. The oral histories would figure into their plans as well. Um, my ideal picture that I painted in my head, I wanted to include photographs of the specific events or um, social gatherings, but at the same time, I wanted to use snippets or uh, pieces of the oral histories that Scotty discussed to represent it, and it kind of gives like a more immersive experience for the guest. So, for example, we have photographs of some major celebrities at the El Toro base, um, and it would have been very interesting to have snippets of oral histories that discuss these gatherings um, on a little more like closer. So, for example, there's history of Bing Crosby being at the El Toro base, of course, that very famous uh, V for Victory pose that Richard Nixon did was at the El Toro base as well. In my opinion, it would have been very nice for the guests to be able to hear bits and pieces as they look at these photographs so that it makes it feel almost a little more realistic or as if you're present. Um, in my opinion, audio and sound provides a lot of more in-depth experiences for history, kind of like what you mentioned, Scotty. Mm -hmm. Reading it, it's one thing, but when you hear it, when you yeah. hear the tone that they're using, it really provides like a better feeling for it, and that's what I wanted. Along the way, researching El Toro helped the students better appreciate the past around them. I always assumed Orange County had been a little more built up than just, uh, I didn't have the picture of uh, ranches and, you know, widespread open land. I had more of an idea of um, the L.A. kind of landscape. So just right off the bat, right there, um, when the uh, in the oral histories, hearing countless people talk about when they uh, first arrived, either during World War II or right after, and explaining the um, up to the present day, 
how things have changed, it really blew my mind because not only the um, size of the growth, but in such a short uh, time period. That's what really surprised me about mm-hmm. all of this. Because, you know, coming in, I had very little knowledge of uh, Orange County history, like you said. So I think that was really the most surprising, just the complete growth. And I these people, you could hear in their voices that they, like, they really had such a different view coming, just like me, coming from a different part of the country. A lot of these people in oral histories came from the East Coast or Midwest. So it really surprised them too, not only me. The ideas flowed, the research proceeded, but everyone was under an end-of-semester deadline. It all had to come together in one big document that would be presented to the Great Park staff. These young public history consultants had much to do in a short time frame. It's a large word, really, interpretive plan. Um, That being said, the way that I see it, it is a game plan of sorts where you as the historian or public historian can present your ideas and steps to whatever project that you want to do. And I personally, the way we designed it is kind of like a guide plan. These are our suggestions. These are the ways you can implement it. And these are the potential effects that it will have on your location. We feel that this is kind of missing at the current moment. If we tweak it, then it might be a little more intriguing. And for example, one of the segments that I included in my interpretive plan was a photographic exhibit because one thing that I noticed when I was visiting the Great Park is that the hangar, it's gorgeous. There's two beautiful planes there. Practically no one would enter. It was usually quite empty and it's kind of heartbreaking. So I suggested if we include photographs that are semi-large that people can see from the outside of the hangar, with any luck they'll be willing to walk in and then they'll dedicate the time to learn a little bit more. And I use the interpretive plan as a way to map it out. I placed um, copies of the photographs that I wanted to include, snippets of quotes that we wanted to add as well, and it really just presents everything in the best way possible so that not only we can visualize it, but they, as the potential people who may use this one day, can visualize it as well. It's really, they're missing out just talking about the history and not going further past just the fact. That's the whole interpretive plan we came up with. It's being able to see these issues that aren't even just in the past, they're right now. So our interpretive plan, our, our first goal actually, Cynthia's was to actually draw attention that there was even a military base in the first place there before mm-hmm. even the interpretive plan, just trying to tell people this is here. But then once getting into it, you know, not just leaving them at, uh, you know, the surface level of it, going deeper in those personal connections. That was my main goal, the personal connection, because that really, in most circumstances and um, topics in history, that's a way that you could make someone interested or at least um, give them some type of insight into what has happened and what is happening. Like any good historians, the students had to leave some good ideas behind so they could create a manageable project. Uh, The biggest pickle is that I'm not psychic, or our team is not psychic, so it was trying to find a way to hone in on material that would appeal to this public that we don't know. We know they're there for sporting events, but what are they willing to keep their eyes peeled for, or what would they be drawn to? Um, Another thing is accessibility. Where, if we have all this history, where are we going to place it? What's going to be left out? 
So the biggest obstacle, honestly, was decisions. What's going to get to stay and what's going to get cut? And for someone who is as indecisive as myself, (laughs) that was quite a complicated thing to master. So ultimately, what we wound up deciding is let's go beyond the military history. Let's go to the personal. They know they're in a military facility if they have the hangars and the planes there. Let's talk about ways that they can connect with the public today. So things like parties and sporting events. We have teams. There used to be sporting, professional sporting teams that would play at El Toro and parties and try to find a way to get that to connect. Um, And also another little bit of a hiccup that we would hit is obviously audio is great, photographs are great, but artifacts are even better. And um, it was really difficult to, in your head, say, oh, if I could just have one duffel bag with the name inscribed in a perfectly contained uniform and pictures of the person wearing said uniform alongside. It's all these things that you would picture, for example, in the Smithsonian. And unfortunately, we didn't have access. We had access to some artifacts, but it's not a perfect world. Um, so it was trying to decide, okay, well, what artifacts will make it and what will get left out? And ultimately, what we wanted to do is find artifacts that connect the people who were living there with the everyday type things. So we included things like razors and cooking materials, makeup, um, grooming items to kind of like get people to see, again, they're just like you and me. They just lived in a different time and in a different place. The students were learning to swim in the deep end of the pool, but they were actually functioning as public historians, thinking about history and public engagement the way professionals do. In my head when this was first announced and it was assigned, I was like, this is my chance to do something and maybe one day see it come to life right before my eyes. Uh, And that, unfortunately, is one thing where you kind of got to take it back. At the end of the day, this was a class. Um, and we can't put so much pressure on ourselves to try to make this perfect thing because it's not a perfect world. Uh, so those, that was a big one, just trying to take a step back and remember this is just a class project. Your career is not on the line yet. There's more to come. Uh, but yeah, that, that was the big one where I just had to like tone it down. For me... Um, just working with the oral histories and um, gaining experience, you know, the process at first when you have this, like, I started with this collection, you're like, wow, how am I ever going to get through? You know, it's it's a um, time consuming process, but in the end, it's rewarding because um, you really, I did find things that, you know, speak to not only the Orange County history, but just America in total. So that was rewarding. Um And I think the creative aspect, because even though in documentary scripts, um, you know, your creative um, input kind of ends after, you know, well, this is the topic that we're going to go for. It's still really, um, it was a great process of, you know, drafting these topics for like a few months before even being like, okay, to my team, this is what we're going to do. And it was collaborating with my team. So it it gave me um, that experience of collaborating with the team, but also as the group leader, having this, um, you know, final input. 
So I think, like we talked about in class, there's all of these different factors that come into a project, and you're going to have to work with other people, and you're going to have to um, compromise. So I think it really, and as far as public history goes, I definitely gained a lot from this project. With the plan presented to the Great Park, the students could breathe again. But as Cynthia said, they are just getting started in this field. Their best is yet to come. The Lawrence DeGraff Center for Oral and Public History and the El Toro Oral History Collection was a major resource for the class while they researched and developed their interpretive plan. Here's archivist Natalie Navarre with clips from the collection. Hello, my name is Natalie Navarre Garcia, and I'm the archivist for the Lawrence DeGraff Center for Oral and Public History. This part of Outspoken is called Out of the Archives. This section is where I highlight oral histories and other findings from our other projects. Throughout this segment, we will be listening to clips of oral histories from our El Toro Marine Corps Air Station project. These clips were selected by Scotty Coyne and his team as they developed an interpretive site plan for Orange County Great Park, formerly the Marine Corps Air Station El Toro. After reviewing the oral histories and cost collections, Scotty's team created documentary scripts focusing on three main themes, race relations, women's perspectives, and combat experiences, all told by veterans of El Toro. Throughout World War II, the United States military was supervised under strict racial segregation, but that changed in the years following the war with President Truman's Executive Order 9981. On July 26, 1948, desegregation within the military began. This opened many doors of opportunity for members of the armed services, such as General Frank Peterson, first African-American fighter pilot of the United States Marine Corps, and later the first African-American general. Frank was first stationed at El Toro in 1952. Well, I was glad that I was sent to El Toro. In fact, uh, anything other than another station in the South. And it was a turning point in my career, although I didn't realize it at the time. But by going to El Toro, I was uh, then uh, sent to uh, combat. I was all of 20 years old. And uh, I flew my first combat mission almost the, the day I turned 21. Here, Frank discusses some of the challenges he faced on base. Things were uh, pretty liberal. Uh, there were no segregated issues, although when I first arrived on board the base in 52-53, I did meet challenges. Um, um, the, uh, one of the officers in the old club um, essentially had me placed under house arrest for impersonating an officer. And uh, that then led to my commanding officer uh, putting an article in the base newspaper uh, to uh, let the, the base know that, uh, well, there's one here. So, but that was the only untoward moment that I had. Frank went on to have a long and successful career in the Marine Corps. Here he reflects on his accomplishments. I feel pretty proud of having accomplished that. I feel pretty proud of having accomplished being the first African-American general in the history of the Marine Corps. But I'm also fully aware of the fact that when, they, when you use these kinds of titles, it's also an indicator that America still hasn't come full circle uh, in terms of uh, what it takes as an American citizen. So long as there's a first black, no matter what the title, we still haven't made it. We still have some, some ways to go. The United States Marine Corps Women's Reserve began to take in volunteer women Marines in early 1943 at the height of the Second World War. Listen as Patricia Young talks about the moment she made the decision to join. I never ever considered going into the service. One day I was sitting out on the front porch reading the Sunday paper and there was this big 
full-page ad, join the Marines. And down in the corner was this picture of this woman Marine. First time I'd ever seen or ever heard of a woman Marine. And I decided, I'm going to join the Marines. Mm -hmm. My mother came out and sat down next to me and I said, I'm going to join the Marines. And she said, if that's what you want to do, that's okay. Patricia's father had served in the military during the First World War, and his son and daughter followed in his footsteps. Although he did not share his feelings with Patricia directly, she knew he was proud of her. Well, I didn't know. He never ever said anything to me, but I'd get letters from people in Whittier and said, according to your dad, I was fighting the Pacific War single-handed. <laughs> <laughs> For the most part, women who joined the Marines were assigned clerical tasks. However, Patricia's efforts went towards raising morale. Here, she remembers performing for the troops. It was it, it was, I was proud to have been a part of that show mm. because we went through the hospitals mm. and did our little shows, did our little songs and our little dances, you know, between the beds and seeing those guys lying there, broken necks and broken everything. And yeah. And it was so hard to just sing and dance and smile, and you, your heart was breaking. Women who served in the Marines often faced disapproval from individuals on and off base. Here, Patricia recalls the resentment some men held against the women on the base. I didn't get around the base. You didn't, you know. We just had the women's barracks. There was no women's mess hall, mm -hmm. so we had to eat with the men, and they resented us. They didn't like it. Really? So you'd come by with your, your tray and they'd just pile the stuff on. And we'd say, just a little bit of that, please. So then they'd give us twice as much. Mm -hmm. They resented us, the women. In the Marines, women were held to a different standard than the men, especially when it came to off-base activities. We weren't going into town. We weren't going to the bars. In fact, <clears throat> they kept track of every liberty we took. Oh, wow. And when we signed up to go overseas, we had an interview with our com commanding officer, whoever she was, and she said to me, you're quite a liberty hound, aren't you? And I said, yes, I am, and if you check Eileen Moore's records, you'll find hers the same, <laughs> and we're not, in, you won't find us in the bars in Santa Ana, we're at home in Whittier doing our laundry and listening to records. Despite some unfair experiences, most women Marines, including Patricia, said they left El Toro with a bigger sense of patriotism than when they had come in. I think the Marine Corps was good for me. I liked the people I met, the friends I made. Mm -hmm. And you just sort of stood for something. Sense of pride and discipline. Sense of pride. Every time I go to the Rose Parade in Pasadena and that Marine Band goes by, I have to stand up. That's I good. just cannot sit there and watch that band go by. And I salute. And that's kind of, I feel foolish here you are in civilian clothes saluting, you know, but <laughs> I just have to do that. This last section of clips revolves around combat experiences from veterans who were stationed at El Toro during their military career. Here, Walter Bertosh shares a frightening experience while in the Pacific Theater. I was a dive bomber pilot, uh -huh. and the other ones were F-4Fs, which were fighter pilots. Mm -hmm. And there was over a hundred airplanes on that thing, and on the deck and in the hangar deck. And I was the fifth one in that, in the, in the bow. 
and the first airplane crashed. Oh. <laughs> and then the second airplane made it, and the third airplane crashed. And I'm the fifth one. <laughs> and I say, you know what, this is pretty damn dangerous. <laughs> the Marines that fought in the Pacific Theater endured many hardships, including starvation and malnourishment. Here, Donald Berman looks back on his first visit to El Toro as a welcome event. Well, we thought it was heaven on earth. The food was outstanding, you know, to to have been literally starved for the better part of two years, mm-hmm. where the average fellow lost as much as 35 pounds. Ernest Buford fought in World War II and the Korean War. In this clip, he shares his thoughts about combat and loss. Uh, you accept this uh, when you're in a in circumstances like this, and you uh, are substantially concerned about your friends who are lost, and at the same time you're uh, optimistic enough to think, well, it's not going to happen to me. And uh, sometimes it does, and sometimes it doesn't. I hope you enjoyed these clips. If anyone is interested in any of these oral histories, you can come on by to cough, and either I or one of my coworkers will help you. Along with these interviews, we have over 6,000 oral histories in our collection. Go to our website at cough.fullerton.edu to research more. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I hope to see you soon, and thank you for listening to Out of the Archives. And that's Outspoken, episode 15. Our thanks to our guests, Cynthia Castaneda and Scotty Coyne. For archivist Natalie Navarre and producer Carrie Markin, this is Benjamin Cothra. Until next time.